Rise and shine, you Syracuse superfans. It's time to pour yourself a tall, delicious glass of orange fizz. Syracuse recruiting news, insider information, latest SU buzz. The Syracuse blogosphere comes to life on the Central New York airwaves. It's Fizz Radio. It's Fizz Radio on the score 1260 back in your life. I'm Gil Gross with Brad Klein. By with, we of course mean on a Zoom call. Brad, how are you? I'm living the dream, Gil. Excited to be here. First Fizz Radio. Well, congratulations. That's huge. And uh, I think it's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm actually pumped for uh, some of the things that we're going to get into. We have the president of the NCAA finally giving us an update, finally speaking out about the restart of college sports. We'll get into some TBT, Jerry McNamara, Bracketology, Syracuse 30 for 30. So much stuff to get into over the course of the next hour. But let's start with this Mark Emmert news. He announced yesterday, and I'll just, I'll just read his quote straight from the source. He said, normally there's an agreed upon start date for every sport every season, but under these circumstances, now that's all been derailed by the pandemic. It won't be the conferences that can do that either. It will be the local and state health officials that say whether or not you can play, um, whether or not you can open and play football with fans. What was your reaction? We finally hear from the NCAA about football starting. It's such a weak stance by the NCAA. To me, this is all about accountability. Nobody wants to be accountable for, some, for a team, a school, returning to sports, and then, God forbid, anyone involved in that sport contracting the virus. That is the worst-case scenario for the NCAA. So they're telling the individual schools, not even the conferences, the individual schools, hey, you figure it out. If anyone on your end gets the virus, it's not on us. We wish you the best. But it's a problem, Gil, because at the same time, the schools are doing the exact same thing. James Franklin, the Penn State football coach, just said, hey, we're waiting on Fed or rather national guidelines to let us know, hey, when can we start? We don't want to be accountable either. Yeah, it's it's the NCAA completely stepping back from this. And now we're going to see a very distinct divide between professional sports and college sports. And what this confirmed to me is that there shouldn't be any assumption that because pro sports is able to figure this out, that college sports is definitely going to as well, because by, by Mark Emmert completely stepping back and saying, well, it's, it's completely basically up to the government that means that they're not really in a position to get creative about this. Can you blame them, though? Not particularly. It, look, it's a very sticky situation for everyone on every side. But at the same time, for the NCAA to build up some credibility, in my sense, and for me to trust them, and there's already so much that, that fans have against the NCAA when you talk about uh, treating the players unfairly, blah, blah, blah. Now, this is an opportunity for the NCAA to look strong and, in a sense, even protect their players. In this, and by saying, hey, we're, not gonna, we're going to protect the competitive and the health interests of all of our players and all of our schools, and they just botched at that opportunity. Now, they're just leaving it up to everyone else, and Mark Emmert is just making sure his hands are clean. Yeah, at the end of the day you're not going to get sports unless you get students on campus. 
And that's something that people haven't fully understood. I've seen some tweets, not from anyone prominent, but from, from random people talking about, well, I don't understand why there can't be online learning. That's more space that opens up on campus for the athletes to social distance. I, I've, I've seen all of that stuff. You can throw amateurism out the window if the NCAA decided to have athletes or football players on campus if no one else is on campus. So I can right, I what completely Mark, agree, yeah. yeah. So what I'm Mark Emmert says isn't wrong. That's okay. What Mark Emmert said is going to be the reality. I, don't, I think his hands are tied here. I don't necessarily blame the NCAA for their stance of we got to let the government and the institutions figure this out because I just don't think that they are in a position to get creative about getting the, the product back on the field. No, they're absolutely not. So in this case, I actually think saying essentially nothing would have been better than saying what they said because <laughs> we, we don't know what the future holds. It's such an unpredictable time right now. And at this point, Mark Emmert's best move would be saying, hey, fingers crossed, let's hope for the best, and hopefully by the fall, we'll have this figured out. Yeah. It's probably a better idea to even be ahead of the curve and say, look, no matter what happens, if football comes back this year, let's come back in the spring. That's something that that would probably make you look better because uh, it's saying, hey, we're – looking out for the best interest of the players. The Ivy League did that in March when they canceled their basketball tournaments, their, their conference basketball tournaments, before the nation did. And now they look like the smart ones, no pun intended, with the Ivy League. At this point, and you're right, by the way, with the amateur being thrown out the window, you can't expect the athletes to come back when their peer students are not. So, yeah, you're right. At the same time, it is about amateurism being uh, held intact and Mark Emmert, I think, just botched the opportunity to look strong and even, shall we say, empathetic to everyone's situation. Sure. Well, what you, what you said about spring and football possibly starting in the spring is something that well-sourced people have said the NCAA is discussing. So, so that's definitely a possibility. But j just to put a bow on this, I, I just want to emphasize what this means is that just because the NFL can figure this out, just because, just because they might be able to get on the field does not mean that college football is definitely going to be able to do the same. There are unique challenges that, that face the NCAA uh, in terms of getting back out onto the field. Well, absolutely, because we're thinking, when we think college football, our mind goes to, of course, Syracuse fans here on the Fizz think Syracuse but nationwide, you think LSU, you think Alabama, and those programs are run certainly more like NFL teams. But when you're the NCAA, you also have to think about the central Connecticut states of the world that don't have the resources available to them to implement and uh, practice social distancing at, a, at a, an acceptable level. So that's what we saw with summer baseball, college summer baseball. Uh, essentially, the MLB might be able to figure it out but the Cape Cod League, the various college summer leagues, they can't because they don't have the funds or the resources. This is Fizz Radio on the score 1260. Brad, this week you wrote about the basketball tournament, which is, of course, uh, an event that would theoretically take place uh, this summer. 
I got to check. Uh, what is it normally? Is it in August or is it Late July? July into early August okay. is when the first round starts. So, of course, that's before the prospective potential college football season. Uh, what, what, was, uh, what were your thoughts on your piece? You know, it's so, it's so up in the air. For the basketball tournament, it's a unique case because it doesn't have nearly the same amount of fans and support, national recognition that any other league that we'll talk about here on Fizz Radio. But at the same time, I think they can actually afford to not play a summer, which sounds crazy for a league, a tournament that doesn't have that many fans, it doesn't have that much money behind it. But you have to remember, the basketball tournament has pretty much the perfect business model outside of the NCAA. They don't pay the players. They don't pay the coaches. They have ESPN backing them and covering them. It's not like they play in the garden. I mean, Bayheim's Army was supposed to play at SRC Arena on the campus of Onondaga Community College, and they don't even pay for transportation in the first few rounds. So it's, it's up to the players to get to the arena and play for free. So I think they can afford to not play this summer I don't think that they will because they can't postpone. You have to play when you're supposed to or not because this is everyone's offseason. Most of these players are overseas players, and they're waiting to go back overseas and play. In some cases, it's safer. The coronavirus is not as severe in Turkey, in London, etc. Well, the whole idea behind the basketball tournament is to capitalize on a time where all you really have is, is baseball. And that's why ESPN pays TBT a ton of money to, to put live sports, live basketball on the air. And that's the whole idea. I think it's interesting to ponder the idea that TBT might be in a good place to actually figure this out and play. Travel notwithstanding, you do have a business model that's entirely reliant on TV revenue. It's all about that ESPN deal. ESPN pays them. Um, as I as I just said, uh, f- for those rights, if you don't have ESPN, you don't have the basketball tournament. That marriage is is still strong, and because it relies purely on TV revenue, I think maybe they could figure this out as long as travel can be uh, can be fluid. And a lot of what I wrote about on on the Fizz is that if the basketball tournament is played this summer, this will be a pivotal point for its fan base for its revenue because there is nothing else to watch. The Last Dance is not going to be here forever, Gil. There is nothing else to watch. That will be the only American live sport that we have to watch at that point, assuming basketball doesn't make a miraculous comeback tomorrow. Yeah, you don't, uh, you don't know what the, what the other pro leagues are going to do. But we're assuming comfortably that that's the only – I see what you're saying. Basket, that's the only professional sport that we can watch. It's the only competitive sport we can watch on national TV on, and on, listen to on national radio, it's not going to have to compete with baseball, which is its Achilles heel. Even two years ago, three years ago, it's going to be the only thing and people are going to consume it and, and recognize it for what it is. It's really cool. And it Syracuse is. fans, they, they enjoy it because they can watch their old players. Ohio State fans have the same thing. Marquette has an alumni team. But aside from the alumni team, there are good stories out there. There's a Division Three team that plays. That could be your Cinderella. It's like March Madness, which fans were deprived of this season. Perhaps, uh, and that's something that a lot of people have uh, been thinking about. But uh, I, would, I would throw some caution at the notion 
that that if you just put live sports on TV, it's going to be a ratings bonanza. I mean, we have seen success stories and and non-success stories, right? WWE uh, with no crowd has been disastrous and their ratings have been absolutely atrocious. Uh, UFC numbers are in. UFC was the first actual real sport, sorry, WWE, um, back. And, and, and their numbers are pretty good. But I, I see what you're saying there. Let's end on this. Um, if you go to TBT's website, there is literally nothing on there about COVID-19. And if you, <laughs> seriously, and if you Google search, if you Google search the basketball tournament right now, it's as if nothing's happening right now. Like it's a full go. They are just ignoring this. It's interesting. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Hope for the best. Look. It can work without fans. You're right. They don't get revenue, much revenue from fans. Even if they sell out SRC Arena, it's just a blip in their revenue stream. As long as ESPN is there and they will be there, the basketball tournament can go on. Now, All you have, keep in mind, by the way, Central New York already opened earlier this week. So for a team like Bayheim's Army, they can host the first round. They can host that region in Syracuse. With no fans. All right, when we no come fans. back – no fence. When we come back, Lenardi is back at it. Way too early. Bracketology. That and more don't go anywhere. It's Fizz Radio on the score 1260. Back on Fizz Radio, Gil Gross with Brad Klein. Just got into some COVID-19 stuff. College football coming back. Uh, the basketball tournament perhaps being our next showing of live basketball. But uh, we roll along with Joe Lenardi's way too early bracketology. It's that season again, Brad. It's, and... it's always that season. It never ceased to be that season. <laughs> and Lenardi comes through with a, with a classic vintage selection which is that Syracuse will sneak into the tournament as an 11 seed, last four in. That would land them in the play-in game against Seton Hall. Brad, do you think that this is a, uh, a decent projection for Syracuse at this stage? Yeah, well, first of all, don't rip on Joey Brackett. only 10 months until Selection Sunday, so just calm down. It's always that season. We're, we're right around the corner there. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fair. I, it's probably where I would have put them to somewhere along the 10-11 line playing game. I get it. Because this team is such a huge question mark that I think Lenardi just didn't know. And he said, oh, Syracuse makes the playing game often. They sneak in there typically. So let's just plop them in there. But there's so, there's so much up in here, so many variables. Is Quincy Guerrier going to take that step up that everyone expects him to? Is Buddy Bayheim going to be more of a shooter, more than a shooter? Is Joe Girard going to be a more efficient shooter? How are the, how are the recruits going to play? It, mm -hmm. You can't predict any of that, it seems. I think Kadari Richmond is going to be a playmaker immediately. I think Woody Newton will take longer to develop and make it a real impact. Also, you, you're, we don't even know if one of the starters is going to play. Alan Griffin, his eligibility is still up in the air. So yeah. I don't know. It makes sense to put Syracuse in there because they always find a way to slither in there. That's a good point. But I, I think the assumption that the team gets better next year is, is a fair assumption. It's not a no-brainer 
right? Of, of course, it, it looked like the Orange were, were uh, an NIT team uh, last season. And the notion that they're going to get better is, is supported in, in every facet other than the fact that they lose Elijah Hughes, who was uh, arguably the best player in the ACC and, of course, uh, led the conference in scoring. That's 19 points per game. But on the other side of things, there are so many players who seem to be in a good position to, to make a leap, so many returning players who, who should be getting better, Gerard, Beheim, um, of course, um, Garrier is going to be a major key. Uh, Sidibe, who, you know, I think that all Syracuse fans were holding out hope that he would not be the center and that Syracuse would land one of the transfers like Patrick to pay. Uh, but he played really well the last five games of the season. At the end of the day, you just have tons of returning players. It's all about, do they get better? Well, I think they do. It's a blessing in disguise, by the way, that Barama Sadibe is likely the center for 2021. He is the best option. I think even when you factor in the transfer portal, the way Sadibe played at the end of conference play last season showed me exactly who Jim Beheim thought he would be all along. He got off to a slow start, injuries, whatever, transferring, transitioning into the system. Now he's finally found his group. He's a late bloomer, but he's finally found his group. I understand how does a team that lose their best player improve. I think it, it's less a testament to Syracuse and more of the ACC. Because remember, the ACC last year was down, really down. And this year, they're right back in it. According, according to Joe Lenardi, they have the second most teams in the bracket, eight teams in, including Syracuse. And that's a great sign. That's a great sign for Syracuse's strength of schedule so while the Orange might not actually be a better team, they're set up better to make it into March Madness. I left out Dolajai as well. I think the, the number one X factor for next season is, is how good Gary A can be because I, I actually think he's got NBA potential and he's just not even, or at least last year, he wasn't even close to being the player who he can be based on his skills and his physical attributes. The other thing I want to see is I want to see Dolajai develop a jump shot. If he can get a mid-range, <laughs> I mean, he can be a, a real weapon because, I mean, he could drive to the cup last year. Yeah, but I was saying, everyone was saying that two years ago with Dolajai. Oh, if only he could shoot. I've given up on two things with Marek Dolajai. One, that he will put on a significant and sufficient amount of weight. That's not And two, happening. No. And two, that he will be a good, solid, reliable jump shooter. Not going to happen. We just have to accept Marek Dolajai for who he is. A smart player, not very physically gifted, but he makes the right plays and he makes the players around him better. He was probably the best passer on the team last season. He's been the best passer on the team for a really long time. And I, I, don't, know if, I, I don't know if Joe Girard would, would take issue with that, but, but I, would, I would think that Dolajai – has been the best passer on the team for three seasons now. And uh, he was also, he also deserves the James Harden award for most likely to draw a foul. I mean, there was a point <laughs> in the uh, season during non-conference play where Dolajai almost had as many free throw attempts as he did field goal attempts, which is crazy difficult to do. And he's become so good at getting to the line. I still think that when Marek Dolajai leaves the hill, there should be a statue outside of the Dome or even outside of Mello of him 
trying to draw a charge against Zion Williamson. <laughs> and that was stoic. That was unbelievable. No one else can say that they would try to do that, especially at 180 pounds soaking wet. That's something else. He's tough. That's why, that's why everyone loves him. Speaking of tough, and another guy that everyone in central New York adores, Jerry McNamara. We thank ESPN for giving us all the content we need for, for this block of the show. Uh, ESPN ranked GMAC as the number 23 uh, head, or excuse me, just coach under 40 years of age. Yeah, there were 25 head coaches in college, on this college basketball list. He was one of the coaches that made the 40 at 23. That's a great, great sign for Syracuse, not only for Jerry McNamara and his career, but Syracuse's future beyond Jim Beheim. I mean, look, the guy's 75 years old, and we've been having this conversation for decades now, but eventually he will not be the Syracuse coach, whether he retires, whatever happens. Eventually – Someone else is going to be at the helm. And, and just to see Jerry McNamara rise up the, up the charts like this to draw national recognition, it's going to help Syracuse tomorrow with recruiting and in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously just one guy or a couple of guys' opinions because I think that there were a couple of contributors to this rankings list. But it's true. I mean, just for context, in terms of the ACC, only two coaches were ranked higher than McNamara, John Shire at Duke and Luke Murray at Louisville. Both, of course, are uh, assistant coaches. So uh, that's good company for McNamara. Absolutely. Now, look, calm down, Syracuse fans. I don't think it's Mike Hopkins 2.0. When, when a relatively young assistant Syracuse coach gets national recognition and there's a lot of hype on him, you're thinking Mike Hopkins, and rightfully so. But I don't think McNamara is going to draw that much interest with head coaching jobs. Uh, outside of Syracuse, especially after Beheim retires, because he's not nearly as good of a recruiter as Hopkins. That was the first thing that I thought of when I saw that he was on the list. It makes sense because he's a great player developer, but in terms of getting guys in here, Hopkins blows him out of the water. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how much consideration McMahon receives when when Beheim calls it quits. He's been an assistant since 2011. So McNamara has been on that bench for a, a really long time now. And I, I agree, he's, he's not Mike Hopkins 2.0. That, that would be kind of the concern because you don't want to continue to lose top assistants to head coaching roles when, when you know that you're going to have that vacant position down the road. Um, he, he isn't the recruiter that Hopkins was. At the same time, you got to think – that as Dior Johnson's primary recruiter, that helps him a ton. I mean, right now, that's the crown jewel on Jerry McNamara's resume, is that he recruited Dior Johnson. And maybe that's what got him so high on this list. It certainly didn't hurt, but as a Syracuse follower here, I'm giving him not an A, but an incomplete, because you still don't know what Dior Johnson's going to do. <laughs> I still think he might go to the G League, especially – when he's retweeting stories about the prep-to-pro transfer, Jalen Green for going college, the same with a few other prospects. And just to keep in mind, he is the number one point guard in the 2022 class. If this is a precedent, if this year is a precedent, then he is certainly good enough to forego Syracuse. 
That is certainly in his conversation. Now, yes, McNamara recruited Dior Johnson, but after, after that, there's not much to show for McNamara's recruiting. You have Bryson Goodine, who's not even with the program anymore. Barama Sadibe, who I'm a fan of in his senior year version, but not so much as an underclassman. And Joe Girard, who's a project, definitely overperformed in his freshman year. Yeah, so I mean, my expectations. Joe Girard wasn't a tough get. No, it wasn't a tough get, but but I think Joe Girard is a is a plus for McNamara's resume because it can show you, oh, now I can develop players. This is, is what I can do to mold this ball of clay that I found in Glens Falls. I get it. Syracuse recruited Joe Girard itself, but at the same time, Joe Girard wouldn't be wouldn't that would not have been the Girard that we know and love today without McNamara. The players love love GMAC. There's no doubt about it. And just to just to give some added context, Darius Baisley, who was a mm-hmm. top ten ESPN guy, that's an Alan Griffin recruit. So that wouldn't go on the uh, GMAC resume. And then another recent highly touted recruit didn't pan out, of course, Jalen Carey. By the way, is has not been picked up on the transfer portal yet. Uh, he was recruited by Adrian Autry. So you're right. It's kind of Dior Johnson, and that's about it on McNamara's recruiting resume. Yeah, and, and if you were to compare him to Hopkins, it's not even remotely close. Tyler Lydon, Malachi Richardson, Michael Carter-Williams, Dion Waiters, Johnny Flynn, Paul Harris, and Jerry McNamara. Just saying. Ah, well, will, will, any, <laughs> <laughs> will any of those players who you just name-dropped end up on our ideal Syracuse starting five from the last 10 years. That's next on Fizz Radio. Don't go anywhere. We're rolling along on the score 1260. This is Fizz Radio, Gil Gross with Brad Klein. Remember, you can also catch Fizz Radio on your favorite podcast platforms. Brad, we caught a Elijah Hughes tweet this week that we want to get into. It was a juicy one. Uh, basically, he named his top five, or not, not his top five, his starting five uh, from the last 10 years of Syracuse basketball. So we made our own lists. Absolutely. And Hughes had Ennis Trish himself, Mark Dolajai and Rakeem Christmas, and with Hughes, I have to agree at point guard, it's Tyler Ennis. And there really wasn't much to choose from over the past decade when it comes to Syracuse point guards. Scoop Jardine, Frank Howard, I'll get to MCW later. But Tyler Ennis was fantastic. I don't want to take anything away from him when I say there wasn't much to choose from. Uh, you, you think back on his career, only one year, one and done. But at the same time, he had that moment against Pittsburgh. So you have the sentimental connection. But there's also the black and white. He was fantastic at his job, 14 points, five assists. And sure, he had plenty to play with. Jeremy Grant, Rakeem Christmas, a bunch of NBA players were on that team. But he's by far the best freshman in the past decade for Syracuse. Can we just go back for a second about Hughes's list? How, like, funny <laughs> is it? And I don't want to bash Marek Dolajai here. Like, that's not what I'm doing at all. But the fact that Hughes put him in there as his – all decade power forward is really just a testament to their relationship and how much Hughes adored playing with Mark Dolezal. Yeah, you have to recognize the bias when you see it and it's there. 
He played with Mark. He didn't play with anyone else on this list. But Mark is, uh, from what I hear, a joy to play with. And from what I see, it's the same thing as well because he's a great passer, uh, always smiling on the court unless he's the one who messes up. And he's always there to put, to pick up his teammates. So a good guy to have maybe in the locker room in the all-decade team, but not necessarily <laughs> on the starting five. Yeah, I mean, he, he shouldn't. He, he shouldn't be there. And again, we'll, we'll get to it, but I'm just saying it, it's notable. You know, you got, you got Dolajai on that list and not Tyus battle who yeah. Elijah also played a year with at point guard, Brad, I got to agree with you. I also have Tyler Ennis. It was a, it was a tough decision between him and Michael Carter Williams. I want my point guard to be a pass first guy. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a starting five. That's going to mesh together. There's some ball dominant guys on this list. So I, I want a passer, and Tyler Ennis and MCW are both those guys. If you look at their stat lines, it's, it's kind of close, but the turnover category is what made me go with Ennis. See, MCW averaged over seven assists per game. Tyler Ennis didn't have quite as much, but also led the ACC in assists. But Ennis had the sixth best assist to turnover ratio in the country. Michael Carter Williams turned the ball over um, over 100 times um, when, when he played freshman year at Syracuse. Yeah, and that should definitely stick with Syracuse fans because the other point guard, not really in consideration, but I guess on the ballot just by default in this kind of exercise, it's Frank Howard, and that was his problem throughout his tenure as the starting point guard for Syracuse. The guy turns it over all the time. Oh, don't worry. He's an upperclassman now, and now he knows how to take care of the ball. Never really materialized for Frank Howard. For Tyler Ennis, he played like a senior immediately, and that's the legend of Tyler Ennis. Yeah, Frank had some other problems as well, but I always, thought, I always thought he was more of a shooting guard, and he, he, you're right. I mean, his ball, his ball handling – was, was never really up to snuff with what a point guard should be. But let's move on to shooting guard, Brad. Who do you got? Give me MCW. And I understand he's a point guard too, but I don't care. It's a two-point guard lineup. Deal with it. Because MCW, you can't play the 2-3 zone in an all-decade team without him. A six-foot-six guard, prototypical zone player. And you talk about you, – you mentioned it. I, I can't rip you too much. But you talk about how Tyler Ennis is a good passer – Michael Carter-Williams, seven assists per game. It's unbelievable. And he really turned it around from his freshman to his sophomore season. Won the Big East Most Improved Player in 2012-2013. And I don't take that lightly. After his second season, he was an early lottery pick. And Michael Carter-Williams is a great passer and a perfect zone player. The one thing you're missing in your backcourt is shooting. Yeah, it's shooting. I understand. I get it. I get it, but I have a gut feeling that okay. someone else in my starting five will take over. Well, let me, let me correct that for you because I wanted a shooter playing alongside Tyler Ennis, and I'm going with the best three-point shooter Syracuse has had probably ever when it comes mm-hmm. to, to three-point shooting. Whoa, whoa. Okay, I know it's not Jerry McNamara because that doesn't make any sense in terms of time. You're about to say something that's blasphemous. Okay. Uh, look, the numbers would suggest that in his first, his first and only season, that he was the best three-point shooter in Syracuse history. I'm going with Andrew White III. It's it's not a guy who comes to mind when we talk about 
the best Syracuse players of the last 10 years. I understand that. He was a grad transfer. Uh, he was part of a team that did not make the NCAA tournament. But it was a team that was prolific offensively, and that's in large part because Andrew White averaged 18.5 points per game and hit 109 three-pointers in his only season at Syracuse. If you look at volume, if you look at percentage, Andrew White is the best three-point shooter that Syracuse has had. In the last decade. Just save yourself. Okay. Okay. Just be careful here because you know, Syracuse fans might crawl through their radios and, and have a <laughs> word with you because Jerry McNamara is the best three-point shooter in Syracuse history. I disagree with you on him being the best shooter. I disagree with you on the pick as well. Look, I get it. He's a good, uh, good shooter an immediate impact on the Syracuse team. But he and Gillen led that team to what? The NIT? They didn't go anywhere. And that's my lasting impression of Andrew White, that bitter taste of losing to Ole Miss in the NIT. That's fair. That, that team never really materialized. I don't think that they were great in the locker room. I think that was evident on the court. And, and I've, I've heard some things. Let's go to the forward position, Brad. Yeah, small forward. This is where I take care of my shooting. Give me Wes Johnson. And this was a toss-up between Elijah Hughes and Johnson. And by the way, I have no problem with Elijah Hughes putting himself in the starting five. That's fine. Because first of all, he made the list. He can do whatever he wants. And two, it's not the most ridiculous thing to say. The reason I gave Johnson the edge, even though they have very similar statistics, is that he actually led Syracuse to material success. The Orange, were, they, the Orange won the Big East regular season title in his final season on the Hill. Number one seed in the tournament. They lost in the Sweet 16 to a very talented Butler team, a five seed. But at the same time, what did Elijah Hughes do? So that's why I gave Johnson the edge. I actually did put Hughes in here. And uh, I understand your reasoning, but I look at a guy in Elijah Hughes, of course, led the ACC in scoring average 19 points per game landed himself on all ACC first team. I just loved his season. I just think despite Syracuse not making the would-be tournament in all likelihood, I mean, he was surrounded by a bunch of players who were really not comfortable in their roles in the, insofar that they had to basically step up and do things that they've never done before, talking about Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim. And, and even Mark Dolajai and Elijah Hughes. Elijah Hughes really buoyed this offense. I loved how much he distributed the ball. And I think that he, he was a market improvement from, from Tyus Battle the two years prior. That's fair. But at the same time, I need, I need something to show for your career. And not that this really had any impact on my decision, but maybe subconsciously it did. Without Wes Johnson, there's no Elijah Hughes at Syracuse. Wes Johnson completely reset the transfer market on the Hill. Before Johnson, Beheim was not very attuned to the transfer market, wasn't very happy with going to transfers. He wanted to recruit his own guys, especially because the zone is such a system that you recruit for. Syracuse always recruited for the system, never really for talent. That's why Frank Howard ended up in his point guard role. That's why MCW was such a crown jewel for Jim Beheim because they were lengthy guys that fit in the zone. Johnson, not so much. Wasn't recruited to Syracuse, but they got him in as a transfer. And Elijah Hughes, the same way. That's interesting. Who do you got at the four spot? This was tough. This might have been the toughest position. I gave it to C.J. Fair. 
And C.J. Fair, very versatile player, scoring threat, Mr. Midrange, by the way, very old-fashioned scorer. Look, he averaged over 15 points per game as an upperclassman. His career numbers are watered down a little bit because his freshman and sophomore seasons weren't immaculate, got up to a bit of a slow start, but his junior and senior year completely took off. And also, I, I kind of feel bad for him because I know his feet were set. So <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to give C.J. Fair this, if nothing else. By the way, can I just have upperclassman C.J. Fair, or is it a package deal? with the first two seasons. No, you get to choose the year. Good. I want and senior year CJ Fair. Yeah, I mean that that'll certainly come into play when we talk about the center position. Uh you get to choose the year. I also have CJ Fair. It's a guy who uh after his senior year was all American second team, all ACC first team, averaged 16 and a half points per game, was really good defensively, was was long, could help out in rebounding and and rim protecting. So uh, I, I have C.J. Fair as well. Elijah Hughes did give him a shout-out. He didn't make his uh, starting five, but Hughes said that C.J. Fair was uh, his sixth man. Let's yeah, – uh, go ahead, Brad. A little, a little bit of an end of an era there. Different, different Syracuse feel when it comes to the basketball team. After yeah. C.J. Fair left the program, was very surprised he wasn't drafted, but that's just on an individual level. Syracuse was never really the same after Fair left. That was their last really great regular season. Mm-hmm. Since then, it's been Syracuse, the bubble team, even if, they're, was, even if they're making Final Fours. That was the long start, the winning streak in the beginning. Tyler Ennis and, and uh, C.J. Fair intersected for one season. Yeah. But for my center, Rakeem Christmas. And this guy is – this was a no-brainer. This was probably even easier than the point guard spot because that's how shallow Syracuse has been in the middle of the zone this decade. Let me just read you his year-by-year numbers. Freshman year, three points, three rebounds. Sophomore year, five points, five rebounds. Junior year, six points, five rebounds. In his senior year, 18 points, nine rebounds for the rack, okay? And no one else that has ever put on a Syracuse uniform since 2010 can say anything remotely close to that. The Orange have been looking for the next Rakeem Christmas since, and they haven't found him, and that's why he's on my all-decade starting five. They've been begging for another Rakeem <laughs> Christmas. I mean, it just – you're right. That's what, that's what Syracuse and I think the coaching staff and the fans alike are just thirsting for. But, you know, one stat that I also want to highlight from his senior season, you mentioned the 17-9. and nine. How about two-and-a-half blocks – what a rim yeah. protector. I mean, he was co-defensive player of the year in the ACC and also one most improved player. So Christmas and Tyler Ennis are the two guys who all three of us, you, me, Elijah Hughes, we have Tyler Ennis as our point guard and Rakim Christmas as our center in the all-decade starting lineup. Those are the yeah, two no-brainers. Those are the two no-brainers, absolutely. I was a little surprised that you had Andrew White there just because – emotionally I don't think of him as a Syracuse player I feel you he was he graduated as a Syracuse player he even played for Bayheim's army but still I, I just don't I don't feel it you know in my heart I, I, I get it Farrell I get it he's the most vintage Syracuse player and that's just the difference <laughs> yeah. yeah I I'm I'm with you I'm just I need that shooting I need it Brad all right so do I it's bad it's, bad. <laughs> I, it's a gaping hole in my team maybe I'd get it off the bench fizz feedback as well as what Syracuse 30 for 30 would we want to see? That's coming up on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. It's Fizz Radio. 
We're taking it home on the score 1260. This is Fizz Radio coming up on the top of the hour. I'm Gil Gross with Brad Klein. We'll get to Fizz feedback in a moment, but first, we're excited for the Last Dance finale tomorrow night. Uh, so we asked ourselves, what 30 for 30 would we want to see that involves Syracuse? What do you got, Brad? I don't know if this was technologically possible at the time, but give me the 1961 Syracuse football season. It's almost kind of like a last dance, too. Two years removed from the national championship. Ernie Davis's last year, the year he won the Heisman, by the way, first African-American to ever win the Heisman. So the story could be told through him, kind of like Michael Jordan. Uh, Dick Easterly's last season, quarterback Dave Surrett's last year. And you know that head coach Ben Schwartzwalder would be a great character. By the way, at the end of the year, they beat Miami in the Liberty Bowl 15-14. to 14. They scored 15 unanswered points to win the game. So it's a great story, great finish. That's my pick. That's definitely it. I mean, I, I'm with you. Uh, I'd say the only other option would be uh, – would be the 30 for 30 that's already been made requiem for the big east which uh which documents the rise of college basketball in the northeast and uh syracuse um leaving the big east and and how that all went down all right it's time for fizz feedback the first one is if college football is a go would you attend a football game at the dome in september fizz nation says 72 percent yes that's surprising to me well, maybe it has something to do with the next Fizz feedback about the dome renovations that the fans are excited for. But hey, America cannot get enough football. Yeah, well, that's different from the 538 data, which said 57% of fans would not attend a sporting event soon if the government regulations were lifted. The second bit of Fizz, fizz feedback is which dome renovation perk has you the most excited? Air conditioning, light, sound, and screen, concourse and vendors, or the bathrooms? And 53% of Fizz Nation says lights, sound, and screen. I tend to agree with them. You're not even going to recognize the dome when it opens up, if it ever opens up at this point. But the heat was an advantage for Syracuse. Dome field advantage, no air conditioner. Why would you put air conditioner into a 21st century building? Doesn't make any sense. When the Orange <laughs> burned Florida State out uh, two years ago, that was phenomenal. Personally, I'm going to have to go with the bathrooms just on a, a very personal note because that's uh, it's a little, little old-fashioned. We'll put it yeah, that way. Yeah, they, they could really <laughs> use an upgrade in the bathroom area. That'll do it for us on Fizz Radio. On the Score 1260, you can catch us same time, same place every week right here on this dial as well as on your favorite podcast platform. So from Gil Gross and Brad Klein, we'll see you next time.